Have you ever been on trial? Maybe not in a formal courtroom setting, maybe in an informal setting. You've been investigated for something you've done or something you've believed. Uh, perhaps every, everyone here who has been uh, raised by parents or grandparents has been on trial. They've been investigated, right? Who knocked over the lamp? Uh, who broke the window? And the questions go on and on, investigated. Perhaps you've uh, been on trial like that before. Uh, We've all faced an investigation, an inquiry, an interrogation uh, from time to time. A few weeks ago, I felt a little bit like I was on trial, like I was called up to the witness stand as I sat down to lunch with a friend who was, was not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had uh, given him my card and told him that if he ever wanted to, to talk about church, wanted to talk about Christianity, uh, what we believe about Jesus, he should give me a call. We'd uh, get coffee or lunch together and, and sit down and talk. So the very next day, that's what he did. He called me and he said, I, I want to talk. And he started our, our lunch by listing the things that he wanted to ask me questions about. So he said that he wanted to talk about origins and the creation of the world, what we believed about that. Uh, he wanted to know whether I, we as a, a church, believed that God really created everything. That we really think Adam and Eve were real people or they were just uh, myths. Uh, he said that he wanted to talk about uh, the, where the church stood on LBGTQ plus issues. Uh, he said that he wanted to ask about the Black Lives Matter movement and social justice. Uh, he said he wanted to talk about a, a Christian political philosophy. He was kind enough to prepare me with a list of questions right there uh, at the beginning. Uh, and so, as I said, I felt like I was called to the witness stand just a little bit. We had great Indian food uh, and a great conversation, uh, but we didn't get through, very far through his, his list. Um, that's not because I wasn't willing to talk about those things. I certainly was. We, we kind of ran out of time. But our conversation also just ran straight into the Lord Jesus. The reality is, is that Christian beliefs about creation, LGBTQ plus issues, social justice, and a biblical political philosophy all rest upon Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You see, if, if Jesus got up from the dead, then he is Lord. He is the Lord who endorsed the teaching of the entire Old Testament and authorized his apostles to write the New Testament. We can answer the questions of our friends and family members as best we can, and we should. But we should also proclaim our faith in the resurrected Messiah. Because if Jesus got up from the dead, then all of Jesus' claims to sovereign authority in heaven and on earth, his claims to be God, are vindicated. If Jesus as the resurrected Messiah declares the Bible, says what God says, and He does, then we ought to bend our ears to God and bow our hearts to God and to His service and conform our lives according to His ways. See, the, the real issue is this. Who is Lord? Jesus' resurrection proves that He is Lord. So that's where this conversation went with this friend. And toward the end, I asked him, do you believe in Jesus? Will you give your life to him as Savior and Lord? Will you follow him? And he said something like, I don't believe right now. I'm still thinking about it. You know, if, there's, if you're a Christian, there might be times in your life that you are put on trial for your faith and belief in Jesus as the resurrected Messiah. And you, you should not be mad about that. You should be glad about that. That's what happens to many Christians before us, and it's what happens to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24. And we have the privilege of learning from his trial this morning. And what we'll see is that Paul, he gets right to the heart of the matter and confesses his belief in the resurrection of the dead. 
If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the pews, you can find the passage beginning on page 933. And if you're not used to looking at a Bible, uh, you should know that those larger numbers there in the, the print are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And I'll be referring to chapter and verse often throughout the course of this sermon. But as we begin to enter into this text, we need to understand the context in which this text comes. The book of Acts it chronicles the ongoing ministry of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through His disciples by the power of His Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus, he set the agenda really for the rest of the book. He sent his disciples out, telling them that they would be his witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and going to the ends of the earth. In our study in the book of Acts, we're in kind of that fourth phase of Jesus' program, where we're seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And we're following the ministry, the preaching ministry, of the apostle Paul. Paul, we've learned, he is going to pass through Jerusalem, and he's bound for Rome. He is going to Rome. That's his God-appointed destiny. But this path to Rome has not been easy for Paul. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he was attacked by a mob in the temple. Uh, he was then seized by a Roman tribune, and he was stretched out to be beaten for whips. When Paul announced that he was a Roman citizen, uh, the Roman soldiers dropped the whips and said, okay, we need to choose a different course. And so he was brought before the Jewish religious leaders to investigate further his belief. And there, that assembly almost tore him to pieces. And the tribune saved him again. Shortly after that, the Jews made a plot on Paul's life. They planned to assassinate him. And the uh, Roman tribune learned of this plot, and so he sent him out by night to the Roman governor, Felix, in Caesarea. And that's where we pick up our text this morning, with Paul in Caesarea getting ready to stand before Felix. And this journey from Paul, it's actually all what God has promised through the Lord Jesus. This is all in fulfillment of Jesus' plan. He announced it in the Gospels when he said that his disciples will stand before governors and kings to bear witness before them. And one of the things that we've been learning in the book of Acts is that the Lord Jesus controls the destiny of his saints, his people. Paul, his destination is Rome. And he's going to make it to that destination and make his declaration that Jesus is Savior and Lord. We can learn a lot from Paul on this journey Though he was uniquely appointed to be an apostle of the risen Lord Jesus, the path and pattern of his life is the path and pattern of every Christian's life. Every Christian, like Paul, is called to go and make disciples, to herald the good news of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So today, as we examine Acts 24, verses 1 to 9, we'll hear Paul charged with being a pest, a plague. In verses 10 to 23, we will hear him offer his defense and confess his faith in Jesus as the resurrected Messiah. And then, in the verses that close out the chapter, we learn of Paul boldly preaching to those who hold his life in their hands. So here's what we learn from Paul and from our passage. Along the path of following Christ, faithful Christians may face charges. Faithful Christians make a good confession of faith in the resurrected Jesus. And while faithful Christians speak of Christ, they bring their hearers face to face with the coming judgment. Let me go ahead and put the thrust of this sermon in a single sentence. Here it is. Along the way of following Jesus, confess your faith and invite others to come to Him before the judgment comes to them. Along the way of following Jesus, confess your faith and invite others to come to Him before the judgment comes to them. 
I believe there's an outline of the sermon provided there in your bulletin. I hope that'll help you follow along. Let's begin with our first point listed on that outline. You may face charges for your faith in Christ. This is what happens to Paul. Follow along as I read Acts 24, verses 1 to 9. And after five days, the high priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, that's Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Well, first we see there in verse 1 that Paul's accusers arrive. Remember, Paul came ahead of them because he was sent by night by the Roman tribune to Caesarea. But as this party arrives, we see how seriously they take Paul, don't they? We have not only the high priests, we have some elders, and we have kind of their chief prosecuting attorney in Tertullus. He himself was in all likelihood a Jew. But this is a, a serious group of men who are not about to let Paul slip through the legal cracks. They want to see him condemned by Rome, just like Jesus was. And given their previous plot on his life, we see that they want to put him to death. They're serious. And in verses 2 through 8, we hear their attorney's accusations, don't we? They're prefaced, you notice, I, I trust, with, with flattery. And the attempt of this flattery is in order to curry favor with Felix so that he will use force against Paul. Tertullus, you see there, he credits Felix with establishing peace. He had actually done so by crushing the rising, uh, the uprising of an Egyptian prophet mentioned back in Acts chapter 21, verse 38. It was a particularly uh, gruesome uh, put down of this revolt. Tertu uh, Felix was a very strong, heavy-handed ruler. And Tertullus, you see there, he goes on and on about how great Felix is. And really, as you read it, it's all just a bit much, isn't it? Uh, the Jewish historian, Josephus, as well as the Roman historian, Tacitus, did not view Felix with such rose-colored glasses. Uh, Felix was a slave who had been set free and then quickly raised to power. And the history tells us that he ruled as one who was really afraid to lose power. So he just kept exerting more and more power and force. As I said, Felix was a harsh and heavy-handed ruler, but that's actually the very frame of mind that Tertullus wants Felix in as it comes to Paul. He wants him to be in a heavy-handed sort of mind, to make use of the sword against Paul. And look at how he describes Paul there in verse 5. He is a plague, a living pestilence, which is where we get our word pest from. Um, Paul is like, from Tertullus's vantage point, an infectious disease. Right? Just like plagues and pestilence spread, According to Tertullus, Paul spreads his disease among Jews and the whole world. Oh, that Christians would be guilty of spreading the good news of Jesus like an infectious disease. We see here, he's also a rioter and a ringleader. He's an extremist sectarian. He's a fundamentalist Christian, if you will, even if you won't. From the vantage point of the Jews, 
Uh, Paul is leading an unauthorized religion there in the Roman Empire. All of this, of course, is calculated to spur Felix on to the use of force against Paul. He wants him to use the same force that he used against that Egyptian prophet who caused that uprising some time ago. After all, Felix, right, in his position as a Roman ruler, he, he can't be seen as one who permits such dissension and violence right under his nose. I mean, one of the chief responsibilities as, his, as a ruler in Rome is to maintain the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So Tertullus is attempting rhetorically to back Felix into a corner to use force. And there in verse 6 you see that Tertullus, he returns to the charge that was raised against Paul in Jerusalem. He attempted to bring a Gentile into the temple complex. That, of course, was not true. And Tertullus, he explains away the, the Jewish riot in the temple complex as though they were trying to maintain the purity of the temple. Uh, it's not true. It was, it was completely false. This attorney, attorneys who should be brokers of the truth, uh, this attorney is struggling with the truth. It was actually the Jews from Asia who stirred up the crowd and caused the violence. And with verse 8, you see that Tertullus, he asserts his confidence in Paul's conviction and condemnation. Just, just examine him, he says. You'll see for yourself. Well, that's not a whole lot of evidence. That's an assertion, isn't it? And Jews, it's not surprising. The Jews who have gathered there, they, they simply give their yes to it. That's right. This, this man is certainly guilty, according to verse 9. They agree that he's guilty and something must be done. Beloved, Paul faced charges. And so may we. If you proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, you too will face persecution, mild or mighty, either one, and perhaps prosecution. If not in a legal court, certainly in the court of public opinion, right? Christians will face the same charges that Paul faced. He was a, he was a rebel. He was anti-government. He was a reviler of the peace. He promoted a religion that was exclusive and narrow-minded, really less sensible than those that were commonly accepted in the culture. He was a pest, a plague. Christians have faced similar charges today. A desire to meet as God commands has been viewed as anti-government and downright unloving. A faithful articulation of a Christian sexual ethic is declared harmful to others' emotions, feelings, and identities. And none of these things are true, of course. But then again, charges don't have to be true to have some sway and power in our world. Paul faced charges, and so may we. We may face them formally, as I said, through a court or, or informally. But this is no martyr's complex. This is just a reality and a recognition of it. This is really the reality of which Jesus himself spoke. So in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, we hear Jesus say things like, If the world hates you, you need to know that they hated me before they hated you. Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul himself, the one who was enduring this trial, said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not an if, but certainty. Will be. Consider these words from Peter, who was earlier in the book of Acts, persecuted for his faith in Christ Jesus. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, if you are a faithful Christian like Paul, you may face charges. And if you do, rejoice. Rejoice, but don't stop there. Like Paul, make a cheerful defense. Like Paul, confess your faith in Christ. This is our second point. 
If you are to be a faithful Christian, you must make a confession of your faith in Christ. Follow along now as I read Acts chapter 24, verses 10 to 23. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before them in the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from tending to his needs. If you are to be a faithful Christian, uh, when given an opportunity to speak of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, you should make a good confession. Make a confession of faith. That's what Paul does. And dear Christian, notice Paul's delight there in verse 10. He makes a cheerful defense. It is his joy to suffer for Jesus. It is his joy to speak of Jesus. And our hearts should be filled with cheer when we are given an opportunity to testify to the good news of Jesus Christ. And because we fear God, we don't have to flatter man and those who sit in judgment upon us. Though we may be arraigned before earthly rulers, we do not fear those who can kill the body. Rather, we fear God, the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 5. We don't fear the temporal rulers of the earth. We fear the God who is the great judge over all the earth. Indeed, we, we don't even fear friends or family. Though they may cast us out or reject us, the Lord Jesus never will. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Unlike Tertullus, you notice that Paul does not spend his opening statement uh, flattering Felix. He merely recognizes his authority as judge and he launches into his cheerful defense. He gets straight to the point. You might be surprised how much people love it when you get straight to the point. Well, beginning there in verse 11, you see Paul begins to actually dismantle his accuser's accusations that he is a rebel and a rioter. He, he states the facts. The fact of the matter is, it's been 12 days since this commotion, this disturbance in Jerusalem. And his accusers, they've, they've not presented a single witness that proves he was the one stirring up the people. Moreover, it's possible actually to understand those 12 days as something of the span of time that Paul had in Jerusalem. If, if that's the case, the point would be that uh, Paul did not have a lot of time to stir up a rebellion. 12 days is not a lot of time to create a movement and foment a rebellion. 
Now we see here that his accusers, they can hire a good lawyer to bring charges, but they don't have any evidence to prove them. Accusations are not an argument for guilt. An argument for guilt must be based upon evidence and the testimony of eyewitnesses. And every judge in a Roman, Roman law court knew that. They've got no evidence and they've got no eyewitnesses. And here, Paul is not so subtly declaring his innocence. And it's at this point that Paul makes his confession. He confesses his faith. He's guilty of belonging to the way and believing God and his Old Testament promises. That's what we see in verses 14 to 16. See there in verse 14, Paul, he denies that he's a sectarian. Or at the end of verse 5, Tertullus, he had charged Paul with being a part of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now that was probably a slight, right? Jesus was from Nazareth. As Jesus is walking around in the Gospels, people say, what good can come from Nazareth? And here, uh, that accusation, that slight is being tied to Christians. Paul is saying uh, that he's, he's not an extremist sect. He identifies with Jesus You'd rather be identified as being known as part of the way. That was the name of the Christian movement that early believers preferred. They were following the way of Jesus, living in the way of his ethical commands. They were following the one who was the way, the truth, and the life. The way to God the Father, as Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse 6. But notice what Paul is saying in verse 14. It's careful. He's saying that as a member of the way, he worships the God of our fathers. Paul sees Christianity as the full flower of the Old Testament faith. Right? The reverence to the God of the Fathers is a reference to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God had planted seeds of promise. And in Jesus Christ, those seeds have blossomed and flowered. The promises have been fulfilled. So in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that he would send a son who would defeat Satan and sin and death. And that's exactly what has happened in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God promised that he would send a prophet like Moses. And that's exactly what Jesus is as he taught the truth of God. In Isaiah chapter 53, God promised that he would send a servant who would suffer and bear the wrath of God, suffering the punishment for the sins of his people. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. In Psalm 16, we read earlier in the service, God promised... That he would not allow his Messiah's soul to be abandoned to Sheol or let his body see corruption. So on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead. His body not seeing corruption. That's exactly what happened in Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised that he would make one of David's descendants to sit upon his throne forever. And that's what Jesus is doing, even now, in his ascended glory. Christianity is not an offshoot or a sect of Judaism. It is the very fulfillment of all of God's purposes embedded in the Old Testament. Christians, from Paul's vantage point, were the true Israel. The Israel of God, as Paul calls them in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. So far from disavowing his Jewish heritage, Paul embraces it. He unashamedly announces that he believes everything, everything laid down by the apostles and the prophets, laid down by the law and written the prophets. Paul understands that the Old Testament scriptures spoke of Jesus. And that's only actually what Jesus claimed for himself. So for example, in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus viewed the scriptures as speaking of him and prophesying of him. And because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament, Paul has a hope in God. He, like the Jews who actually had come to accuse him, 
believes that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. It's only what the Old Testament itself taught. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, it clearly proclaims that at the end of time, God will raise all people from their graves. Understand this. Everyone here this morning will get up from their graves. If you die, you will be raised from your grave. And that text tells us there's just and there's unjust. This text tells us there's just and there's unjust. And we learn from the teaching of the scriptures that the wicked will go to endless punishment. The unjust will go to endless punishment. And that the righteous, the just, will go to endless joy. So what is the connection between Paul's hope in God, his belonging to the way, his his faith in Jesus, and the resurrection of both the just and the unjust? It's simply this. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of a harvest of resurrections that are coming. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of a harvest of resurrections that are yet to come. That's what we learn from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul believes in the resurrection of the dead, not simply because the Old Testament teaches it, but also because he was confronted by the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. You see, because God did not abandon Jesus' soul to Sheol, like our reading in Psalm 16 mentioned earlier in the service, then God will not abandon Paul's soul to Sheol. That's why he has a hope in God. Because Jesus got up from the dead, so Paul too will get up from the dead. This is why Christians have a hope in God. This is why death is no longer a terror to Christians. But instead we have a sure and certain hope of our own resurrection from the dead. It's why Paul can say things like, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because he knows he will have more of Christ and he knows his promise of a glorified, resurrected body delighting in Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Note, note there are only two groups of people here. The righteous and the wicked. The just and the unjust. Everyone here this morning falls into those two categories. There's no middle ground. The resurrection of both the just and the unjust on the last day will rush men before the judgment seat of God. Are you ready to stand before the judgment seat of God? Are you just? Or are you unjust? Paul, notice, is ready to stand before the judgment seat of God. And every day he continues to make himself ready to stand before the judgment seat of God. That's why he says there in verse 16, do you see it? So, for this reason, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. The last and great day, the day upon which the just and the unjust will be resurrected and rushed before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus, is why Paul aims to have a clear conscience. The final judgment is motivation for Paul to consciously live a life in conformity to God's commands. Now that doesn't mean that Paul was sinless, but what it does mean is that Paul labored and aimed not to knowingly violate, willfully violate God's commands. It means that Paul keeps a short account, right? That when he sins and God through his conscience sends off the alarm bells in his mind, that Paul is quick to repent, to seek God for forgiveness and to reconcile to God. And the same was true with his relationship with man. The final judgment gives Paul a desire to have a clear conscience with his relationship with men, right? It, it, it encourages him to deal with him with integrity and to speak with him in truth. And then when something comes between him and his fellow man, he wants to reconcile, seek forgiveness if he's sinned against them. 
This is what motivates Paul. He, the final judgment motivates Paul to live a life of truth and integrity both before God and man. What motivates you to live a life in conformity to God's commands? Like Paul, does the fact that you will stand before the judgment seat of God motivate you to honor God with your life and your lips? Do you confess your faith in Jesus by your way of life? Do you confess your hope in Jesus by your way of life? Is your faith in Jesus demonstrated in your life? That's something what Paul is getting at here. This is his confession. He belongs to Jesus. He believes the promises of God were fulfilled in Jesus. And he behaves in a way that honors Jesus. And he behaves in a way that is full of integrity and honesty with his fellow man for Jesus' sake. Because Paul has a clear conscience before God and man, in verses 17 to 21, he turns and he gives Felix a true chronicle of the events that have occurred. Paul describes his actions there in verses 17 and 18. He explains what he was doing in Jerusalem and why. He was there to bring alms to the poor. The Jews in Jerusalem had suffered a famine, and Paul went around collecting resources for his fellow Jewish brethren to relieve their, their, their poverty. That's what he came to Jerusalem to do. He came to bring alms. And he also came and he purified himself there in the temple. That's what happened, we read in Acts chapter 21, verse 26. And what Paul is doing here is he's rebutting the charge of Tertullus there in verse 6. That he was attempting to profane the temple. Paul was there in all purity and piety. And interestingly enough, Paul pauses there in verse 19. Pauses kind of in the middle of his defense to note the absence of his real accusers. It was the Jews in Asia who had instigated the riot in the temple complex. They were the real troublers of Israel. And they weren't even there to make their accusation against Paul. Where are the witnesses? Paul is um, essentially pulling a card from Tertullus' hand, right? Examine him yourself. And what Paul is doing is saying, uh, examine the witnesses. Oh, oh, wait, they're not here, right? And then these men, he also charges or challenges Felix to examine these men who stand before him, who bring these accusations. And they, they have nothing to say either. And Paul returns to his confession. He comes back to it a second time. He, he's responsible for this, this one thing. He caused a commotion in the Jerusalem assembly when he unashamedly declared his belief that it was because of the resurrection of the dead that he was on trial. Now friends, this is the second time in Paul's defense that he talks about his belief in the resurrection of the dead. Why would Paul tell us this twice? Why would he tell Felix this twice? Well, because every parent and every teacher knows when you want something remembered, you repeat it. You repeat it, you repeat it, you repeat it. So it's remembered. He wants Felix to remember the heart of the issue is the resurrection of the dead. And this is almost certainly shorthand for Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Luke, the author of Acts, is merely giving us the highlights of these proceedings. He's only got so much space in this scroll in which he has to write this account of the church, the growth of the church of the Lord Jesus. Paul wants Felix to know that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel who has come to save his people from their sins. And since he has been raised from the dead, then all of Jesus' claims have been vindicated. And so he deserves our worship, our faith, and our service, and our praise. Felix, as we can see there in verses 22 to 23, he delays this decision in Paul's case. Luke informs us that Felix had actually a rather accurate knowledge of the way. And what that means is that Felix actually knew the teaching of Christians, and he knew about this Christian movement. He likely gained it from perhaps one of two sources, or maybe both. 
Um, certainly, there was a mass conversion of thousands of people there in Jerusalem uh, early in the life of the church. There's this movement that's growing up in Felix's realm. So he must have had knowledge of this movement to some degree. But then, as we're also going to learn in just a few verses, Felix was married to Drusilla, who we're told was a Jew. And all Jews had interest in the Messiah and his claims because that was the hope of Israel, that a Messiah would come. So it's likely that Felix has gained some of this knowledge, not only from experience, but also from his bride. And what we see in verse 23 is that Paul is kept in custody. Now, while Felix gave Paul some kind of freedom to move about the cabin, if you will, and have friends come and visit him, receive him, what's plain is that Felix is holding a man who is innocent of any charges of deserving death. While it may be prudent for a season, given the heightened tensions that Paul has experienced, as a Roman citizen, he has a right to a speedy trial. And what we're about to see is he's not going to get that from Felix. And before we move on, I just want to usher in a brief word of application, especially to my Christian brothers and sisters. We have seen that Paul is on trial for his confession of faith that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Beloved, let me say to you again, make a cheerful defense when people ask you of your faith. And when you have the opportunity to speak of your faith, whether that's formally or informally, proclaim Jesus as the resurrected Messiah, Savior, and Lord. Like Paul, get straight to the point and make a cheerful defense. Like Paul, confess your faith in Christ. Now, as we examine the verses that kind of close out the chapter, uh, we'll see that Felix delayed yet further. Here we see from Paul that not only must we explain our faith in Christ, but we must also warn of the future judgment. This is our third and final point. You must explain faith in Christ and warn of the future judgment. Follow along as we read verses 24 to 27 of Acts 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. For he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment... Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. In verse 24, we clearly see the summons of Felix, but this time he brings his bride along. Now there are a few things that you need to understand about these two, about Felix and Drusilla. We've already learned that Felix is a former slave, is a harsh and heavy-handed ruler. But what about Drusilla? Well, Drusilla, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us, was exceedingly beautiful. Like she's a world-renowned beauty. Now, Josephus also tells us that Felix, uh, in order to win her, uh, sent a sorcerer uh, named Simon to convince her to divorce her husband and marry Felix. So Felix is Drusilla's second husband, and history tells us that Drusilla is actually Felix's third wife. Paul has been brought before two adulterers, and he's been brought before two individuals with rage and anger in their backgrounds. We know Felix's rage from his rule, but Drusilla has a family history of rage. If I have my history correct, then Drusilla's great-grandfather was the Herod who was responsible for killing all of the baby boys at the time of Jesus' birth. Drusilla's grandfather was the Herod who put John the Baptist to death. And John the Baptist, you remember, he was put to death because he uh, told Herod that he was living in an adulterous relationship with his wife. Uh, 
And then, her father was the Herod who was responsible for the death of the Apostle James. So this couple, with their adultery and their history of anger, are dangerous. They're a, a royal mess. And so what do they need? Well, they need what all sinners need. They need what you need. They need what I need. They need to hear the good news of faith in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul speaks to them about. You see that there in verse 24. What is faith in Christ Jesus? Well, faith in Christ Jesus is simply this. Recognizing that we have lived sin-filled lives, but that Jesus has lived a sinless life. You see, God has made us in His image. He's made us to love Him, to honor Him, to serve Him, to worship Him, to give our lives to Him, to obey His commands. That's why he planted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and gave them everything they could possibly want. They could eat from every tree in the Garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day in which they ate of it, they took the fruit of that forbidden tree, rebelling against God. The day in which they eat of it, God promised they would surely die. And that's precisely what Adam and Eve did. They sinned against God. They rebelled against Him. They decided to live their own way rather than God's way. And so they plunged all of humanity into sin. And we have all ratified uh, that our heritage of sinners in our own lives, as we've sinned against God and sinned against others. We've lived sinful lives. But the good news of the Bible is that God promised to send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect righteousness, the life of perfect sinlessness. And Jesus offered His life as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice so that we might be reconciled to God. That's what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus gave up His life for sinners like you and me. He died bearing the wrath of God. The punishment that was due to our sins. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And what happened at the cross is Jesus was paid the wages of His people for our working in sin. But that's not all. The good news of the Bible is also that Jesus, on the third day, was raised from the grave on a Sunday morning so long ago. And His resurrection from the dead shows us that all who turn from their sins, turn from their life of living for themselves, living against God and against His commands, all who turn away from their sins and turn to Jesus Christ, they have eternal life with Him. He lives forever, and those who unite themselves in faith to Him, who believe that He lived the life that they should have lived, the life that they could not have lived, that He lived for them, that He died the death that their sins deserved, that He was paid their wages, those who believe that He was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of their sins, all who believe who place their faith in Jesus will be rescued from the wrath of God, the wrath and justice that our sins deserve. That's what faith in Christ is. Trusting not in our righteousness. Trusting not in our good works. But trusting in Jesus' righteousness. And His good work for us. That's what Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla about. When he spoke to them about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, I want to urge you. If you're here this morning. And you're a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to urge you to place your faith in Jesus. You will stand before Him on the last day. And your only hope of escaping that judgment is found in the judge by saying that my hope is only in Jesus, the one who gave his life for me, who loved me, who laid his life down for me, who was lifted up from the grave for me. Christ alone is my only hope. Friend, place your faith in Jesus Christ today and you will have peace with God. Your war with God will come to an end and you will be forever accepted by God and received into his heavenly kingdom. This is what Paul proclaimed to Felix and Drusilla. And we see too that Paul uh, was, was invited to speak more often. We see that he was also invited to speak. And when he did, you see in verse 25, he spoke about three things. Righteousness, 
which is another word for justice, self-control, so reference to passions, and the coming judgment. See, when, when Felix, when, when Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla about righteousness, about justice, uh, he was talking about how to live a just and righteous life. Now, this is difficult for Felix because history tells us, and we see even here in our text, that he was known for taking a bribe. In other words, he didn't rule justly. He ruled unjustly. He didn't rule righteously. He ruled unrighteously. Now, think about this, friends. Here is the man who holds Paul's life in his hands, and Paul is saying, friend, you are unjust. You are unrighteous. Imagine, how, how could Paul say that to the man who has the authority to put him to death? He fears God more than he fears man. He knows who the true and final and just judge is. He knows that God will right all wrongs in the end. But that's not all. That's not all that Paul confronted Felix and Drusilla with. He confronted them with self-control. It's a reference to passion, a reference to lust. And what do we know about Felix and Drusilla? Well, their one, their marriage was made of one of adultery. They have not exercised self-control. They haven't restrained their passions. They've given themselves to their lusts. And here is Paul saying, you too, you have not lived a life of self-control, which God requires. You, not only that, will face the coming judgment. Sobering that Paul brings them right before the judge, with their sins exposed and bare before them. Paul is saying, Felix, you may sit in judgment upon me, but you need to know that one day the Lord Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, will sit in judgment upon you. As Thomas Watson once said, He who had a purple robe put upon him in derision shall come in his judge's robes. He who hung upon the cross shall sit upon the bench. Beloved, in love, at some point with unbelieving friends and family, we need to confront them with their sins and the coming judgment so that they see their need for the Savior. That's just what Paul did. And no wonder you see here, what was Felix's reaction? He was alarmed. If you are outside of Christ, the reality that you will face eternal self-conscious torment, the just wrath of God forever in hell, ought to alarm you. It ought to alarm you, but it cannot stop there. Don't let alarm lead you away from Jesus, but to Jesus. Turn to the judge who has offered his righteousness, his self-control, his sinless life as a sacrifice to save you from the coming judgment. Friends, here is the truth. Paul, he was on trial for his faith in Jesus, but so was Felix. Felix was on trial for his lack of faith in Jesus, for his lack of righteousness, his lack of self-control. And his life condemned him, as all of our lives condemn us apart from Jesus Christ. Our only hope is to go to Jesus. Allow your lack of righteousness, your lack of self-control to lead you to the one who can save you from its punishment. Felix, you see there, he delayed, didn't he? So we see in verse 25, and stretching into verse 26 and 27, he delayed making a decision on faith in Jesus Christ. He delayed in making a decision on Paul's case too. He wanted money more than he wanted to please the maker. Friend, beware of the wealth of the world. It will fool you. It is no safe place to hide yourself. It is no security from the eternal judge. He wanted money. He wanted the favor of men too. Right? He wanted to do a favor for the Jews. Beware 
of seeking the favor and pleasure of men. Seek instead the favor and pleasure of God. Felix may have suspended his judgment on Paul's case, but one day God will not suspend his judgment on ours. The day is fixed and the day is coming. The standard of judgment is righteousness. The man of judgment, Jesus, has been appointed. The assurance of judgment has been given through Jesus' resurrection. There will be no alteration of this course now. Indeed, there ought to be alteration of life. Are you ready for that day? Place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It was loving of Paul to reason with Felix and to warn him of the judgment to come. Christian, it is loving to reason with our friends and family members and to warn them of the coming judgment. Beloved, we must explain faith in Christ and warn of the future judgment. And this is what we should think about as we, we conclude. From Acts 24, we've seen Paul face charges, make a confession, and warn of the coming judgment. Though Paul's position as apostle was unique, Paul's pattern is one that we should follow. Along the way of following Jesus, dear Christian, you should confess your faith and invite others to come to Him before the judgment comes to them. This day we gather to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. That's why we gather every Lord's Day, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the grand signal that the forgiveness of sins is available to the world. In this we rejoice. That's how we have our sins forgiven. And still Jesus' resurrection also signals the beginning of the end. That great delight that one day we will be gathered to Him. See, the day of judgment is actually a day of joy for Christians because we go to our dear Savior. That great and last day is a, delight, a day of delight for all of God's people. But it is, though, it is a day of dread for those who despise Jesus, deride His people, and delay for deciding. Now, I don't know if you remember the friend I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. After I shared the good news of Jesus' resurrection with him, and as our lunch began to wind down, you'll remember I asked him something like, Do you believe in Jesus? Will you follow him as Lord? And he said something like, I don't believe right now. I'm still thinking about it. Like Felix, he delayed. He put off deciding to submit his life to Jesus. Friend, for you, I urge you to choose wisely and to choose differently. I urge you to choose Christ today. He has been raised from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. So come to Him and receive the joy of your salvation. Today is the day of salvation. You are not promised tomorrow. And you should prepare for the coming judgment. And the only way to prepare for the coming judgment is to confess your guilt, your danger, your helplessness before God. And to turn to Jesus for salvation. Trusting in His righteousness alone and His perfect self-control throughout the whole course of His life. And trusting that He will rescue you from the wrath to come. Do not delay. Come to Jesus today. For He is risen from the dead. And He is Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that our Lord Jesus ever lives and reigns to intercede for us. Father, we are guilty before your throne. Judged according to your standard of righteousness, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We make that confession. And Father, I pray and ask that you would help each one of us 
to make a good confession of faith in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. He is our only refuge. So help every soul here this morning flee to Christ for refuge and safety and security and salvation. Father, we pray and ask that you would prepare each one of us for the coming judgment in this way. To rest in Jesus' work for us. That he loved us and gave his life for us. Father, help us to hide ourselves in Christ alone. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.